Jesus did the unthinkable. He ate dinner with people labeled sinners by the religious self-righteous. Eating with someone in an Eastern culture was considered a very intimate time, sharing life together through the close connection of a meal. The sharing of food, wine, and laughter was a way of saying, I am with you. We are together. We are friends. So when Jesus ate and drank with these so-called sinners, the religious leaders were offended to the core. How can this teacher of God's law eat with them? But Jesus didn't come to seek and save the righteous. Jesus came to seek and save those who were labeled unrighteous. People cast aside and judged by the religious. People who were lost and in need of hope, in need of forgiveness, and in need of love. The religious leaders accused Jesus of being a sinner himself because he befriended them. Jesus was even accused of being from the devil for associating with those who broke the law of God. Jesus then shares the heart of God for the lost. The son left his home and squandered his family's wealth on prostitutes, gambling, and drinking. He brought shame to his family, wasted every penny of his fortune, even having to eat with pigs to stay alive. Could he go back home or not? Would he be accepted or rejected? Would the Father forgive him or condemn him? Would the Father love him or hate him? Perhaps, he thought, I could just be a family slave. At least I'd have something to eat, clothes to wear, and a roof over my head. So he took a great risk and returned home. When his father saw him from far off, he ran to his lost son, embraced his son, welcomed his son home, and threw a party for the whole family. Bring the family robe, bring the family ring, make a feast for the whole community. My son who was lost is found. My son is home. My son is home. So some of you are no doubt thinking to yourself, another sermon on the prodigal son. You're thinking, I've heard this, I've heard this every year, multiple times. I'm here to tell you that you will continue to hear it year after year after year after year because it's one of those stories, it's one of those powerful moments that truly, honestly, gets you just straight to the heart of the gospel as good as any other story that Jesus tells. And so uh, I, I want to just uh, remind, how many of you guys have ever been to a concert for a band that you absolutely love? Anybody ever been to a concert for the band they hate? That'd be weird. Anybody? Sorry. Anyway, so the, those of you guys that have been to like your favorite band's concert, those, I mean, you've been to them, you've, you've heard all their songs for years. Uh, for me, I've been to a couple concerts for some bands that I really like. And um, on the way to these concerts, you usually have a discussion in the car. And the question is, what songs are they going to play? I mean, they've got so many songs. Which ones are they going to choose? You know, I think most of them will probably be off that new album, but I don't know. I mean, this is kind of a, a different kind of concert. They're probably going to do a lot of the popular ones. You guys ever had these conversations or is that just me? 
Yeah, so I, would, I want you to know that like the same way that like if you go to a U2 concert, you're like, I guarantee you they're gonna sing With or Without You. It's gonna happen. They're gonna sing Where the Streets Have No Name and everyone's gonna love it. Uh, this prodigal son thing, it's basically that, but for the Bible. Have you guys, uh, I'm, I'm 38 years old, which might shock you because I'm so physically fit, but, um, but uh, when I was a kid, they used to have these commercials uh, on TV and they would be advertising these like the best of, you know, this artist or that artist and they would have these scrolling song titles that would, they would just go through the screen and they'd go out the bottom and they just one after another, they'd go and then they would have the occasional one that would be yellow and, and the, all the rest would all be white and then the yellow one would be the song that was playing at that time. And then as that one would go out, they, they'd change to a new song and that song would be yellow. What I'm trying to, does anyone remember those commercials or is it shit? Okay. Anyway, um, th- this Prodigal Son, this is one of those yellow songs. It's just one you're going to hear because it is such a rich, deep, and profound expression of the gospel that we have to touch on it. We need to touch it. If we're going to do a series on the life and the message of Jesus, this is a story you cannot dance around. And so I want to share with you a quote from a guy by the name of Tim Keller. He is a pastor from New York, and he is really smart. And this is what he said. He said, I believe that if the teaching of Jesus is likened to a lake, only really smart people phrase things like that. If it is likened to a lake, this famous parable of the prodigal son would be one of the clearest spots where we can see all the way to the bottom. This story is rich. It is deep. It is just full of depth. And so I encourage you guys, the same way that at the end of that U2 concert, when they start belting out the song and people start getting goosebumps, allow yourself to hear this message uh, from that perspective, that this is a classic. This is one that we all as a body can, can, can sing along together. Don't sing right now. You guys already did it earlier and I wouldn't want to show you guys up. So we're not going to sing, but you get it, the metaphor, right? With that being said, Tim Keller wrote a book about this, product, this parable called the prodigal, son, the prodigal God Recovering the Heart of the Christian Faith. I am showing this to you because it is a fantastic book, one that you can get on Kindle right now for $1.99. $1.99 on Kindle, it is short, it is an easy read, and it has some profound truths, many of which I will steal for today's sermon, and uh, I just want to make sure I give credit before I go ahead and steal his stuff. So if you have your Bibles, open to Luke chapter 15. And we're going to be starting right at the start, and we're going to go all the way through to the end of Luke chapter 15. Verses 1 and 2, it says, The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. There's a few important things we need to know before we go on. First of all, um, tax collectors and sinners. Uh, The idea of tax collectors being Despicable people is something that will come up again and again and again today. And just for those of you guys that don't know the way that goes down is that the, the Jewish people, the region of Judea was under Roman rule. And the Roman government uh, liked to build a lot of big fancy things. And so they did that by taxing the people. And they didn't send out Roman officials to go tax the people. They would have people in the lands that they, they dominated go and collect taxes for them. And so Jewish people would go to Jewish houses and knock on their door and say, please pay me for the Roman government. That was something that people uh, weren't very fond of, and anyone who did it wasn't going to be very likable within the community. And so the way the Roman government made sure they could always have people willing to do it was they told the tax collectors, feel free to add a little something for yourself. So now imagine you're a Jewish person with one of your Jewish, you know, know, national, national kind of brothers or sisters, knocks on your door and says, pay the Romans. Oh, by the way, it went up a little this week. I'm not sure why, but pay me. 
They were really, really, really unpopular. And so what you need to know is that when it says that the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, it's important because Jewish religious elite leaders wanted nothing to do with tax collectors and sinners. Jewish leaders would avoid them like the plague. They would literally just do anything to not be seen anywhere near them. The the first century uh, religious kind of world was very much the holy and the unholy, the clean and the unclean. And as the clean religious elite, they wanted to stay away from the unclean. But Jesus, he was different. Jesus spent a lot of time with the quote unquote unclean. He spent a lot of time reaching out to them. His disciples, many of them would have been seen as quote unquote unclean. Uh, Levi was a tax collector and Jesus said, come and be my disciple. By the way, I'm changing your name to Matthew, which is just something that Jesus could do because he was Jesus. And so he would call this tax collector to be one of his disciples. And later on in the Bible, you read a story about Jesus walking down the road and Zacchaeus is up in a tree and Zacchaeus is a tax collector and Jesus goes and has dinner at Zacchaeus' house. Again, people grumbled, they muttered, can you believe he's going to that guy's house? Not only did Jesus seek them out, but they sought him out. There was something about his message, there was something about his ministry that appealed to them. Something about the idea of grace and forgiveness and a God who loved everyone in spite of their brokenness, it drew those people to Jesus. And so just like this story tells us, they would gather around him. And inevitably, time and time and time again, all throughout the Gospels, you see this controversy where the teachers and the Pharisees, the religious leaders would say things like, can you believe that he's hanging out with those people again? So this last line, this verse three is important because it gives you some context. It says, then Jesus told this parable. In other words, after Jesus was seen hanging out with these people and after they muttered and grumbled, he was provoked, he was prompted to to share a story with them. I love the way the message says it. It says this, it says, "The, the grumbling of the religious leaders triggered this story. There was something about what they were saying that literally Jesus is like, all right, I have got to tell you some stories. He actually tells them three stories. Have you ever had someone do something that literally you found, like, I have have got to prove a point here and I'm gonna craft a story to prove this point. Has anyone ever been there or is that just me? I did it once recently and about a year or two ago, I'd finally had enough of my friends grumbling and muttering about the fact that I became a Seahawk fan four years ago. Those of you guys that are laughing, you know it's because the Seahawks just got good about three or four years ago, and oh, how convenient that I became a fan, right? Those of you guys that are sports fans, you know that that would make me a bandwagon fan, that would make me uh, all sorts of wonderful names that you can feel free to call me. I don't care, because I have some stories that those comments triggered. So I started making up stories to show why I think it's okay for me to do it. It's three stories, just like Jesus. I'm very Christ-like sometimes. Anyway, first story, it's about a little boy. Little boy, he, he, he fell in love with two girls. Now, it's not kind of weird, creepy. It's just, he just really like, wow, these girls are amazing. They're awesome. I love both of them so much. And, and after years of affection that this boy showered on these two girls, both of them just got up and left. Packed their bags and just said, I'm out of here. No explanation, no apology. They just left. And that boy was left heartbroken. So that story is about a boy... Me, and those two girls are the Rams and the Raiders. Okay? Grew up in Long Beach. I like both of them. I couldn't decide. They're both both great. And then they leave, and they just leave me there. What kind of a loser would still root for a team after they leave you? Surely none of you would do that. 
after they go thousands of miles away without an apology. So that's the first story. The second story is about that same boy relocating to a, to a town a lot like this one. And when he moves to this town, his friends start saying, oh my gosh, there is a girl I have got, you have got to meet. You're single, you aren't, you aren't attached, you aren't whatever. You need to meet this girl. And so sure enough, they, they, they set up a date. We go, we hang out. She's fine, but she's not, she's not my type. Not a lot about her that I find all that appealing. And I'm like, hey, listen, I'm sorry. You feel free to whatever, but I'm just not feeling it. And that girl was the Chargers. Not a lot to like about the Chargers. Maybe the thing that drove me away was that their quarterback whines a lot. But anyway, and then the third part of the story, the, the really beautiful part of the story is that this same young man now is, is taken by a good friend of his up north. And while he's up there, he just, he, he meets the girl of his dreams. I mean, she is, she is beautiful. She's got these blue and green eyes. It's amazing. She's incredible. She, she welcomes him with just open arms. So, I mean, it's just, it's exciting. And, it's, and she returns his love with love and it's just fantastic. And he knows, he says, if you fall for this girl, your friends are gonna give you a hard time. Random people at church are gonna give you a hard time. But he says, you know what? I will not let that nonsense stand in the way of love. And so that is my stories. See how you guys trigger that? They, they trigger that. And I had to craft these stories to prove a point. Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, and these people keep muttering and grumbling everywhere he goes. He's like, all right, that's it. Trigger. Here's three stories. Let me share them with you, because you guys have got to understand some stuff. So he says to him, suppose that one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts that sheep on his shoulder and he goes home and then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. This is the story of the lost sheep and he follows it up right away with a story about a lost coin. He says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, when she finds that lost coin, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's the lost coin. And then he goes on and he, he shares the story that you saw in the video, the story of the lost son, the story of the prodigal son. It's a story about a father with two sons and one of them is this self-disciplined, very faithful, very diligent older brother and the other one is the younger brother and he is anything other than self-disciplined, diligent and faithful. He is a wild child and he wants to go and he wants to soil his wild oats. He wants to go and see what the world has to offer and he wants to go now. He doesn't want to wait. He knows he needs money to do this and so he tells his dad, listen, you are better off dead than alive to me. I want the inheritance that you will give me when you die, so how about I just get it now and you let me go? And, and anyone who heard that story then, just like many of you now when you hear that, you think, oh yeah, good luck with that, but much to the shock of the audience that Jesus is telling this story to, the dad actually gives the money. And so the kid goes and he goes to this far off land and it says that he wastes all of it, he squanders all of it on wild living. And so here he is in this far off country, all of his friends that were flocked to him when he was buying all sorts of fancy stuff and wasting all his money, they've all just kind of slipped back into the shadows and here he sits alone in a far off country and he is desperate and it's only just beginning because now 
there's a famine that sweeps the land. And so he becomes incredibly desperate, so much so that he takes a job feeding the pigs, and he's so hungry, so desperate to fill his stomach that he starts looking at the pig food thinking, looks pretty good. I'm going to get some of that. And that's when it says that he comes to his senses. It says that the son comes to his senses and he realizes that back home, he had it so much better. Even if he were to go back home and be one of his father's servants, it would be 10 times better than what he's dealing with now. This boy realizes, wow, I need to just, I need to work up the courage, work up the gall and the audacity to go back to my dad. I will work out the best script I can to say, here's how sorry I am. Here's how I'll make it up to you. Please, please, please just let me be your servant. And so we're going to pick up in verse 20 while it says that he's walking home. It says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. That sentence should come as a shock to all of us. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Goes on and says, the son said to him, he started to rehearse his, or say his rehearsed speech, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father interrupts him and says, quick, to his servant. He says, quick, bring the best robe, bring the finest robe and put it on him. And it goes on and says, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive. Again, he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is the end of three back to back to back, simple, profound powerful stories that Jesus shares because these people and their muttering and groaning and just, just complaining about Jesus hanging out with them, it triggered these stories. He needs them to know something. And if you look at these stories from the, the, even the most cursory glance, you would see that these stories reveal the heart of God in a very deep and profound way. They reveal that our heavenly father is a heavenly father who dearly and deeply loves the lost. It is a beautiful, wonderful, powerful truth that was relevant for everyone who heard it then and is relevant for everyone who hears it now. We need to understand the heart of our Heavenly Father is one that dearly and deeply loves the lost. And so I do believe that these stories quite simply, at the most simple level, are intended to communicate that to each and every one of us. But I also believe that these stories did have a very specific audience as well. I believe these, these stories were targeting one of those two groups, the tax collectors and the sinners or the religious leaders. And as much as I think they benefited the, the, the tax collectors and the sinners to hear it, I believe because of what Tim Keller has, has opened my eyes to that he was definitely addressing the tax collectors, excuse me, the, the, the uh, religious leaders and the Pharisees. So I want to go ahead and I want to look at some passages here that will show you how this story turns. This is the second half. The next one, please. Uh, this is the second half of the, 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 the parable, the one where we start to see the tragic turn of the older brother. It says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and said, What's going on? The servant replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. So the older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. He's like, I don't get it. 
You explain to me why you're throwing this big party. Why, I mean, literally, you've you got ribeyes on the grill. You haven't even done so much as like, give me like money for Del Taco. Like, this is ridiculous. How, this makes no sense. Not cool, not fair, not right. He doesn't deserve any of it. I do. That's, that's the, 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 the moment of like, oh boy. That is the moment of dissonance in this story, the moment where it's just, it's, something isn't lining up. These stories are just crying out, here is the heart of God, and the tragedy of this moment is we're seeing how far the heart of his older son has drifted from the heart of the father. And those are the people that Jesus is trying to address. And so after the son makes this just ridiculous statement that basically says, he doesn't deserve it, I do, the father doesn't just go, all right, that's it, I'm exasperated. He still lovingly, gently, and kindly pleads with the son. My son, the father said, you have always been with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, this son of mine, he was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And this is where Jesus stops. Luke chapter 15 ends right here. It started with this, this real life situation where tax collectors and sinners gathered around and, and the religious leaders started judging him like they always do. And he said, here's a story. Here's a story. Here's a story with a big twist at the end. And then he leaves us. He leaves us with this just cliffhanger. Here's the older brother. He's already expressed complete and total exasperation and frustration. The father is pouring out his heart saying, can't you see how much I love your brother? Can't you join in my joy, join in the celebration? Can't you share my heart for the lost? And the story ends. And as much as I'm like thinking, come on, Jesus, just tell us how it ends. I think it's genius. I think it's beautiful. Turns out Jesus is really good at making up parables. Turns out that that it's beautiful the way that he leaves it because when you consider the audience, it's like, yeah, the tax collectors and the sinners and the despicable kind of refuge of society are over there hearing like, oh, this is cool, God loves us. He's also leaving this cliffhanger, almost saying to them like, what are you guys gonna do? Are you gonna sit out there and pout? Are you gonna stomp your feet and say, this is not fair, this isn't right? Or are you gonna come in and celebrate? And that is something that happened time and time and time again in the ministry of Jesus. This older brother syndrome reared its head over and over and over again. Jesus was constantly clashing with them. And as you look at these, these moments where Jesus is again and again and again and again having to talk to these people, you see some really kind of almost tragic truths come up. Check out this verse from Luke chapter, or Matthew chapter 19. It says, there's another time where Jesus is dealing with the same scenario. It says that Jesus says to the Jewish religious elite, to the, to the people that were the most respected in society, the people that led the religious services. He says, truly, I tell you, these tax collectors and these prostitutes, they are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. I mean, what a shocking sentence. What a shocking thing for Jesus to say to the religious leaders. What an what a, uh, inflammatory remark. For him to say this to the religious elite, the, the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the one that even the average folk are like, whoa, keep my distance from. He's saying they are going to enter the kingdom of God ahead of you. How? Why? Look at what it says in Luke chapter 5, I believe. It says, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect, they're complaining to Jesus' disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Another of the same scenarios. And Jesus' response is, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. 
I haven't come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Now, I need to say really, really clearly that, that there is no such thing as, as the righteous. There is no human being other than Jesus Christ who is, who is truly righteous. There is no one who is truly healthy. What he's talking about is people that have an awareness of their sickness versus people that think they're A-OK. And what, it, what he's trying to say is that, man, the, the tragedy is that there's people that know how sick they are because you've made sure they hear it every single day. Your, your society has made them very clear where they stand on the, on the ladder of righteousness. And he's saying, sadly, they are the ones that are coming to repentance because you guys think you have all your stuff together. And there's, there's a passage from the Sermon on the Mount I want to share with you because I think it, it's a broad passage that I believe applies to life in general. But this last line, when we get to it, you'll see how much it applies to them. It says, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. Parents, you want to say this to your kids over and over and over. You want to say, man, if you can just see the world clearly, it'll help you make wise decisions. It says, when your eye is healthy, when you have the right perspective and wisdom, your whole body, your whole life will be filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, man, your whole body will be filled with darkness. We've all seen this. People that choose to, to make decisions that throw their life away, they're not like, huh, how can I best throw my life away? There's something in them that's not seeing things clearly in that moment, and they're making the choices they make, and this is the tragedy of it. It says, if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. I love that phrase. Because I'm telling you, how many, I'm, these religious leaders, Jesus is saying, you need grace, and you need forgiveness. And they're like, no, we don't. We're better than everyone. We're good. And he's like, no, you, that light you think you have, it's, it's broken. The flashlight you're about to go out into the forest with, it's broken. Let me give you one that will actually shed light. They're like, listen, bozo, I've got it already. And they adamantly insist, we've already got light. We don't need what you're offering. And Jesus is like, oh, my dear, sweet, foolish religious leaders, how deep that darkness is. Because no matter how many times he would yell, can't you see? They'd say, yes, we can. That's the older brother syndrome. When you read this story in your Bible, if you have your Bible open or even on your app, it'll, it'll, there's people that add headings later on after they are originally written to kind of add clarity to sections of Scripture. And in this one, it'll say, at the top story, it'll say the lost, uh, the lost sheep. And then it'll say the lost coin. And then above this one, it'll say the lost son. Which I want to correct and say, thanks to this book by Keller, that it is not a story about a lost son. It's a story about two lost sons. It's a story about two lost sons that suffer from very different issues. One of them is the one that everyone can easily identify. He's the wild child. And the other one is sadly the one who thinks he has the light, but the light that he thinks he has is really darkness. And sadly, that darkness is a very deep, deep darkness. So... As we kind of um, just chew through this, this idea, I would hope that when you read this story that you do a little bit of introspection. I would hope that you look in the mirror and I will tell you that I, as I reread this book over the last couple of days, I was like, all right, God, here we go. Look, you can you just help me. If, I, if I'm guilty of being the older brother, if I'm guilty of being the younger brother here, really I was much more concerned with becoming the older brother, let me know. Reveal it to me. Help me to see it. And I would hope that, again, you've done that yourself. And some of you are like, Ryan, you don't understand. There is no concern about me being the older brother because I am currently living the wildlife. I don't even know how I got here. I literally thought this was a dance club and I heard the music. It was crazy. I thought, cool, start early. Um, if that's you, if you, again, I, I hope, 
I hope that you realize that, like I said, even though this is targeting the religious elite, the religious superior people, the people that think they've got their stuff all together, I do hope you can hear the heart of God in this passage. I do, and honestly, not to be a jerk to you, but I hope that you hit rock bottom soon. Because I, I believe one of the greatest gifts that anyone has when they're in a downward spiral is to finally hit the floor. To finally have that moment where they're like, look at how bad this has gotten. It was so, why am I, why am I so just attached to this life? That's the beauty of that story is that the son finally realizes, man, it is, this is, ugh. If I just go back and get, just to be a servant in my father's household is better than this. And I, again, I, I've joked time and time again with, I don't think I've joked, I've, I've cautiously made the statement time and time again that if you told me that my children would end up okay on the other side, I would, I would, I, would, I think, I really say this hesitantly because I'm sure that some of my kids will do this, I would, I would wish for them to go and see how empty that life is. The, the life of the younger child. If, again, I mean, I, I obviously don't want my kids to make life-ruining decisions or just things that can just completely devastate them. But if you told me they can make it out the other side, there's something to be said for the perspective you have over here. It's beautiful and it's powerful. And, and I hope that if you are in that younger brother category, you would hear one thing today, and that is that God dearly and deeply loves you. And that if you ever want to turn back to him, he will be running down the road with his arms wide open. For those of us that, that relate more to the older brother, which, spoiler alert, is me, there is a lot of my childhood that I can see so much older brother in, and there's still some danger for that to rear its ugly head in my life now. But uh, we really have a lot to, 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 to kind of be introspective about. Are, are we missing the heart of God the way that the older brother in the story is? I know that when I was a teenager, I went to a youth group in, in Orange County where I sat in the back and literally just stared at cute girls, not in a terribly creepy way, mildly creepy staring, but um, I would just go to youth group because there was cute girls there and my parents wanted me to go to church. So I'm like, hey, compromise, I'll go and check out hot girls. And I went every single week and I sat there and I, I heard the stories and I'd kind of stand up during worship and I'd clap because that was like the only thing I felt comfortable doing and, and I didn't want to be the person who just stood there looking awkward. And so I'd sit in the back and I, I'd go to some camps occasionally and, and I would have leaders try to reach out and say, hey, why don't you be a part of our small group? And I'd be like, no, I don't want to do that. I've got other things and, and this is lame and you guys just sit around, you get all emotional and I want to do that stuff and whatever. And so I would sit there and, and, and I would rebuff people's attempts to connect with me and then I would also sit in the back and get incredibly bitter when these people would show up that had lived these wild and crazy lives and they would show up and people would welcome them with arms wide open and they'd be like, oh, it's so good to have you. And inevitably they'd stand in front of church and they'd share their testimony. And they'd be like, hi, my name's Billy. I'm new here, you probably don't. I mean, I don't know if you guys heard, but I used to do a lot of bad things. I did this with these people and me and my girlfriend would do this and these drugs and these drugs and whatever. And I'd be in the back and I'd be like, wow, this guy's horrible. And then inevitably people would be like, Billy, it's so good to have you. And they'd be like, and I'd be in the back like, seriously? We're, we're clapping for this guy. He has nowhere near, I mean, I have literally, I mean, again, for all my faults with, with not liking church for a lot of reasons, I was very self-disciplined. I mean, I literally was like, God, I want you to know, I have not done this, I have not, you are welcome for my faithfulness, God. And I, and I would be like, this is not cool the way he's getting more acceptance here than me, even though I've turned down people's attempts to, to make me feel accepted, it's just not cool, I don't like it, I, I, he doesn't deserve it, I do. Older brother. And again, I'm going to assume that I'm not the only one who's ever felt that way. Hopefully. Just one hand would make me feel great right now. Thank you! <laughs> Whew! <sighs> that was close. So as we, as we wrap up here, uh, and we are going to wrap up, I, I want to just 
I want to, I want to close with one last thing. And, and again, I had read this book that I've been borrowing mildly from throughout this entire sermon. Um, I read it about nine years ago, and for some reason, I had, I had no recollection of this point that I want to close with. And honestly, I'm, I can't imagine how I don't because it's incredibly encouraging and profound to me. It's, uh, it's again, this book, Prodigal God, and the, the title is something that I never really spent time to chew on other than the fact that I just, I don't know, it seemed out of place. Whenever I, I think of the word prodigal, I checked with my wife last night, and she was the same as me. I always just assumed it meant like uh, the wayward son, you know, like the, the one who goes out into the faraway country. And I always wondered like, aren't they like, I thought prodigies were like good at piano when they were like three, but I don't know if this kid could play piano, but this is what the word prodigal means. This doesn't mean what I thought it meant. It's, it's characterized by profuse or wasteful expenditure. It is recklessly extravagant. And so again, the name of that book is called The Prodigal God. And, and the name that it's often referred to, this parable is called The Prodigal Son because the younger son goes to that far and he, he squanders, he, he, he is prodigious in his spending. He squanders and, and wastes his money. But what Keller is getting at is that when you look at this story, there's one person who is prodigious and his spending more than anyone else in this story, and it's not the wayward son, it's the father. And he is, he is a father that is, that is prodigious in the way that he is willing to spend and sacrifice on our behalf, which is beautiful and wonderful and profound. And so when you, when you look at the story, there's another thing that came out in that book that I love. He talks about the fact that there's three parables in a row, and they basically are the exact same story with slight little, little like, twists in the main characters or themes. So when you look at these stories, they're, they're repeated one after another because first of all, they want to make, you want to, um, that's how you emphasize points that are important. You want to emphasize that God dearly and deeply loves the lost, tell three parables in a row that, that prove that point. But there's another reason why they tell these three stories, why Jesus tells these stories is, is because when you, when you repeat something over and over and over, you build a, uh, a rhythm, you build a pattern. And sometimes really smart teachers like Jesus will build a pattern just so they can break it on purpose. And they'll build a pattern so that the audience will go, whoa, 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 what was that? You just broke the pattern. And they'll start going, why did you break the pattern? What's going on there? And if you read these stories, there's something unique in that third story that breaks a pattern. And I, I mean, I, I don't know if, you, if you've thought of this before, or I know I've kind of wondered on it, but I didn't realize how intentional it was, but Jesus purposely changes the, the pattern. There's, there's a shepherd, has a hundred sheep, one is lost, he goes out and he finds that sheep and he brings it back. Rejoice and celebrate. There's a woman with 10 coins, she loses one, she sweeps the entire house, she goes, she finds it and she brings it back and she celebrates. There's a father, has a son go and the father waits. And then when he sees his son, he does run out and he meet him, but he doesn't go and find him. And, and, and I want you to hear what Keller says about this and I'll, I'll close with these, these quotes. I'm actually gonna read about three paragraphs from his book. He says, by placing the three parables so closely together, he is inviting thoughtful listeners to ask, well, who should have gone out and searched for the lost son? Jesus knew the Bible thoroughly and so did his first century Jewish audience and they all would have known that at the very beginning of the Bible, there's another story of an elder and a younger brother. It's the story of Cain and Abel. He says, in that story, God tells the resentful and proud older brother that you are your brother's keeper. So Keller goes on to say that this is what the elder brother in the parable should have done. 
This is what a true elder brother would have done. He would have said, Father, my younger brother has been a fool and now his life is in ruins, but I will go and look for him and I will bring him home. And if the inheritance is gone, as I expect it will be, I'll bring him back into the family at my expense. So that's, that's the tension that was, that was intended to be felt. And, and this is how Keller wraps it up and, and I'll use this to wrap it up as well. By putting a flawed elder brother in the story, Jesus is inviting us to imagine and yearn for a true one. As you read this story, you should feel that disconnect. You should go, man, I, I wonder if he would have had a good brother. It says, that, it says that we, by putting a flawed elder brother in the story, Jesus is inviting us to imagine and yearn for a true one, and we have him. Think of the kind of brother we need. We need one who does not just go to the next country to find us, but who will come all the way from heaven to earth. We need one who is willing to pay not just a finite amount of money, but at the infinite cost of his own life to bring us into God's family, for our debt is so much greater. Either as the elder brothers or as the younger brothers, we have rebelled against the Father. We deserve alienation, isolation, and rejection. The point of the parable is that forgiveness always involves a price someone has to pay. There is no way for the younger brother to return to the family unless the older brother bore the cost himself. Our true older brother, Jesus, paid our debt on the cross, in our place. That's the gospel. And that's something that the older brother needs to hear so that his heart can get in line with the father. And that's something that the the rebellious younger brothers need to hear so that they can know that he is always there running down the road with his arms wide open and that his son Jesus represented what the older brother should have been. He goes out and he seeks and he saves the lost. Like it says in Matthew 19.10, That is why Jesus came here. That is the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of redemption. That is what he was all about, and that is what we as a church should be. Sadly, oftentimes we as a church are the people that that if maybe just maybe some of the sick or or, or, uh, the the sinners hear about the gospel of grace, oftentimes it's Christians that are saying, no, 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 it's grace, but... You need, to get, you need to do X, Y, and Z before you get in this hospital. I know you're sick. You need to heal yourself a little before you can come in here, which is just stupid. But again, that is something that if we're not careful, we can fall into if we, if we fall into this older brother syndrome. So my hope and my prayer, and honestly, my encouragement for us as a church is that I do truly deeply believe that we are, we are heading in the right direction here. And I just hope that you would see the heart of God and you would be compelled, not by guilt, not by you know, me trying to convince you, but you would be compelled by the love of his son, Jesus Christ, our true older brother, to go and share that love with the people in your life, the people on your cul-de-sac, the people at your workplace, the people uh, that you share the sidelines with when you cheer your kids on in whatever sports they're playing, the people in your life, I would hope and pray that you would be inspired by the love of God, exemplified in Jesus, to go and share that love with others. Let's stand up and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beautiful, simple, wonderful truth of the gospel. I pray that each and every one of us would, uh, would be open and hungry to hear some of the classics again. God, the idea of us as a church hearing this, this story again and, 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 and metaphorically singing along to it in the way that we live our lives, God, that is so beautiful and inspiring, I pray that we as a church would be able to live into that. I pray that we as a church would be able to take the inspiring, compelling truth of how much you love us and that it would, it would lead to us going out into this valley and sharing simple but profound truths with the people around us. That you love us. 
that you love us even when we rebel against you, that you offer us full and abundant life. I pray that you would give us the, the courage and the strength to, to seize opportunities to, to share that truth with people. And I also pray that you would give us the wisdom and the, uh, the ability just to find simple ways to share the truth and the love of Jesus with the people around us. God, we love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. 